0: This morning, this psalm, uh, 119, but specifically these verses, founded on the law of the Lord and the greatness of his law, the wonder of his law, the beauty of meditating on his law, thinking and living out those practices, that's all throughout this psalm. Specifically, these verses with that foundation is all about God's salvation and the freedom he brings, the freedom God's salvation brings. So when we talk about God's salvation, or just salvation, biblically it's spoken of in two ways. The way that we, as believers, often speak about it, hear about it, for good reason, is ultimate salvation. That is a change in our nature or a change in our status before God, brought through and only through Christ. Brought through Christ. So ultimate salvation, being once an enemy, being made a friend of God, brought from darkness to light, from death to life, from being dominated by the ways and tactics of Satan to now being a child of God and a friend of God. Colossians 2, 20, sorry 1, 21-24 says this, speaking of... The church and their former status, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Verse 21 again, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled. That's salvation. The gospel. Romans one sixteen. This psalm, and oftentimes throughout Scripture, and I would argue that's what we're seeing here, is not simply the salvation of enemy to friend, but actually the periodic, practical, perhaps we could say day-to-day or moment-by-moment, or periodic rescue that God provides for his people. So the periodic rescue that God does and will provide for his people, um, rescuing them from various things, but some of which are the world, power of the flesh, and the devil. those realities which are set up against God's people. Maybe one or two weeks ago when I led prayer meeting, we went through Psalm 91. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I will trust. Surely he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler. Deliver. So often throughout Scripture, deliver me, deliver me, deliver me, deliver me. That's the practical periodic Rescue that God provides and that he grants his people. One word, and there are many, but at least one word, if you look at all of the Bible, any of the Bible, that always describes God's people, one, one of God's people, multiple of God's people, is trouble. We, they, are always in some sort of trouble. Right? Uh, Because we don't live in a neutral world. We live in God's world, but if you're not under God's authority, you are dominated the forces of the world. And years ago, being taught by Pastor Craig from Ephesians, we know that there are there's not just the physical, but we are constantly in battle with spiritual forces, rulers, principalities. That's what we have to guard ourselves against. That's what this psalm is about, though, that practical, periodic rescue. So this psalm, founded on God's law, Psalm 119. It's as if Psalm 19 had years and years and years and years to grow up, and it became Psalm 119. Psalm 19 is unbelievable to me. Psalm 119 is un-unbelievable to me, or un-un-un. God's law, salvation is founded upon God's law, that periodic salvation. Why? Because God's law promises that. Without God's law, without his promises, a servant, whoever, could have no hope. Deliver me. Based on what? If it's not God's law, then it's just wishful thinking. It's exactly what our culture does. And so God's salvation works in tandem in this psalm with something I believe we sang about this morning, and that is obedience. And much of that, which I'm going to look at this morning, is the obedience factor of the psalmist. So we have to get those in order, though. God's law, salvation, and obedience. So the obedience is based on God's rescue. And when I say based on God's salvation or based on God's rescue, what I mean is God's salvation is his previous rescue, and the life of his servant, but also the firm promise of future rescue. There's previous rescue in which someone who serves Christ, or in the Old Testament, served Yahweh, looking toward the future coming Savior. There was always something to go back to if they knew God. There was always something, you did this for me, therefore I will put my hope in you. Moses, dealing with The troubled, struggling, impatient, often disobedient Israelites. He had the previous knowledge that God brought them out of the land of Egypt as they were wandering. He had the future knowledge of, I will deliver you into the promised land. But in between there, my goodness, uh, that had to have been unbelievably difficult. Previous rescue and the firm promise of future rescue frees God's servants, or us, to live in freedom. God's salvation in tandem with an act of obedience to his word leads to a life marked by this freedom. And I, when I say this freedom, verse 40, 45, I shall walk in a wide place. I shall walk in a wide place. Some versions may say I shall walk in freedom, for I have sought your precepts. So there are four marks that I wanted to key in on this morning regarding the psalmist's life, thinking about this moment-by-moment rescue that God gives us. And these four characteristics or four realities, I believe, should be um, marked in the life of a Christian. Perhaps not one-to-one, but the general principle of these marks should just be an obedient servant of God, of Christ. And those marks are found really 42 through really 46. And if you take notes... um, these are the four things I'm going to touch on today. One, mark of, the four, mark of the psalmist is, one, walking in freedom. Two, being able to answer anyone. Three, speaking before kings. And four, not being put to shame. Walking in freedom, answering anyone, speaking before kings and not being put to shame. So walking in freedom. Well, freedom Freedom of what? Freedom toward what? Well, the freedom of knowing what I mentioned earlier, that regardless of how a circumstance looks, how a situation looks, that God will come through for his people some way, somehow. God will come through some way, somehow, which leads to the freedom to be confident in obedience. Right? Because we have that undergirding faith that God can, will, and does come through for his people. One very important thing to note about the reality of God's faithfulness, looked at in verse 41, steadfast love, your faithful love, it always delivers, is God defines, not us, God defines, not us, what is coming through. God defines what is this periodic and practical deliverance that he provides for his people. If I defined how God works out my life for his glory, and he delivers me, somehow I would be a CEO. Somehow every last person who's ever been my enemy, I would have zinged them with a great comeback. and just any look at any biblical history will show you. Well, actually, it's a war, uh, but a lot of the battles, L's. Right? I mean, Joseph, a lot of L's, before that ninth inning like grand slam. Walking in freedom, therefore, isn't what I just mentioned. That's a worldly, antichrist way of thinking. Uh, that just caters to our base sinful desires. The freedom is the freedom of obedience, or perhaps, even in some circumstances, obedience is the freedom. Obedience is freedom. Think about your life as a Christian. When are you, practically speaking, least free? When a, pra- when a pattern of sin has been gaining ground on you. Right? It doesn't matter what's happened at work or school and relationships, Like all those things will just essentially be mocking you as you slowly wander away and fall away a bit from the Lord until he disciplines you. You repent and are restored to a closer fellowship with him. Obedience, which we can see in the psalm writer's life here, is the freedom. And I say again, think about your own life as a Christian. Right? You have no money, perhaps, you feel like you have no say in life, jobs horrible or your family relations aren't going great, and yet those are real and should be taken into account and prayed over all those things. But man, if you are in a tight, growing, relationship with the faithful, big, and sovereign God, somehow, if you take an inventory of your life, if you've been a Christian for a while, I bet you can look back and say, actually, yeah, I'm, there was a period where I was a lot more joyful in the Lord here when I was nobody than here where things seemed to be going well, but actually there was some sin I wasn't addressing. Right? That's, that's not freedom. That's horrible, <laughs> um, right? If you had to choose between the two, my goodness, take this every single time. Obedience plus nothing is everything. Um, everything minus obedience is just a horrible train wreck of a life that will just eat at your soul, right? Walk in freedom. Think about it this way. Galatians 5, we know the works of the flesh. We know... The opposite, walking in the spirit, walking, walk, an active word, right? So a little tangent, but waiting on the Lord in Scripture is never passive. And even when it is passive, oh, it just so happens to be fervent prayer, which is actually active. So waiting on the Lord is actually active. Walk in the power of spirit. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Later on, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. In other words, the fruit of the Spirit will lead to a life that is marked by wonderful joy with God. And walking in the Spirit, it's God's power, but it is obedience. So what should freedom in Christ truly be like, feel like, and thus look like in a lifestyle? Galatians 5, I think it's 23, perhaps the best description we can think of the fruit of the spirit is works of the flesh are horrific it's a long list walk in freedom that characterized characterizes the psalmist and it is predicated upon love for the law and thus a knowledge based on the law that God comes through, and therefore God comes through, I can obey. Because I know the end of the story. As Christians, we definitely know the end of the story. So can't we obey? I mean, my goodness, in what other circumstance do you actually know how things are gonna end? (laughs) We actually know the end of the story, which has always baffled me, and it's been amazing. We know how things are gonna end, us in glory with Christ, no more mourning or pain, Worshiping at his throne. All of the former shame and sin, things that once dominated, no longer will. We know about that victory, and yet it is so far out of our consciences. Think about that walking in freedom. Two, two, three, and four, and one, they all go together, right? These are not isolated realities. Answering anyone. And that is found 42. And then I shall have an answer for him who taunts me. And him who taunts me would be an actual real life enemy of the psalmist. Um, we do not battle people. Our battle is spiritual, but those absolutely manifest themselves in space time reality, right? Um, people sin in real space and time because of the dark forces that dominate them because they don't know God, right? So very often, think about the Psalms, think about just Old Testament history specifically, even the life of Paul um, or really anyone who served God ever. There was always an actual real group of people or person that was plaguing them beyond belief. Constantly. So this psalmist isn't just talking about someone up here. Like, this is someone who's probably making his life a living hell. Yet, somehow, I shall have an answer for him who taunts me because, or for, I trust in your word. Have an answer for anyone. Well, probably in two ways. One way would be, when necessary, if necessary in life, prayerfully, we can have a verbal, gracious but verbal answer about the hope that we have, why we have that hope, who is Christ, and why the troubles of life, pangs, horrific circumstances do not destroy us. So verbally, legitimately, Right? We answer with grace, but we do answer with truth. There's also non-verbally, though, and that is the answering anyone through a life of integrity. The name of this game, answering anyone, is integrity. Integrity, your yes means yes, your no means no. You say you're about this thing and your life actually manifests itself in that way. In other words, in a practical sense, there is a blameless factor um, to someone who's walking in the power of the Spirit, walking in freedom, and thus is able to answer in lifestyle um, anyone who is throwing lies or the darts of lies or whatever at that person. So Second Thessalonians, Paul's life. An amazing example of this, and I wanted to turn there. You're welcome to turn there. You're welcome not to turn there. Chapter 2, I think. Oh, 1 Thessalonians. <clears throat> I might just read. A lot of verses here. Starting with verse 1. Paul's ministry to them. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict that was probably, meaning absolutely verbal. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were You are witnesses, and God also, how holy, righteous, and blameless was our conduct toward you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you, and encouraged you, and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Verse 10 You are witnesses, and God also, how holy, and righteous, and blameless was our conduct toward you believers, and littered all throughout this passage is also, and I didn't necessarily plan this, but God is a better planner than I, we spoke, we spoke, we spoke, we declared, and we lived. In a sense, verbal and nonverbal. Paul's integrity and those who worked alongside him was undeniable. And so any pangs, any darts, any slander that came his way, ultimately, he had a defense, whether it was accepted by the world or not, right? But the truth is the truth, and the truth does win. Being able to answer anyone, such as Paul, with the way that he lived his life in the power of Christ, blameless. Isn't that just amazing? Think about this. In a world, in a culture where I would say the least thing that is in existence is integrity. Think about having a life, and it is actually the way you live, where you cannot be pinned to the wall, truly pinned to the wall. You might be lied about, and you know, like Joseph, you may take an L like I said, but none of it's true. That's almost unfathomable in our day. Every other public servant ever, like every other week, there's a new scandal. It's like, well, I was in office for two weeks. So, I mean, I hit my quota before I had this whatever it was. Being able to answer people, not for your own sake, but for God's. One other example that comes to mind is Daniel. Daniel... Uh, who often was in a very high position, yet seemingly at the same time in hot water. In his tenure under the kingship, I think it was Belshazzar, if I'm saying that wrong, my apologies. King's servants, they don't like Daniel. They want him out. So they plot, they plan, and it says in the book of Daniel that they couldn't find anything against him. But they knew one way they could get to him. And that is written in Daniel. We know that he always follows, I'm paraphrasing, the law of his God. (laughs) So what did they do? Well, they wait till the king or have the king set up a scenario where essentially he has to be worshiped, right? And they know, oh, that's the one thing that Daniel won't do. So let's wait and let's catch Daniel in the act. Daniel's caught in the act of, well, doing right before the Lord. But I find the statement essentially, or the idea that the only thing they could go to to try to mess with Daniel, that guy, is I guess we got to just, we got to get him following God's law. That's how we're going to get him. Like, that's the only thing they had. And if you read scripture, you know that those will always 100% of the time blow up in the face of God's enemies, whether now or eternally. But, man, by the grace of God, may that be true of our congregation. If we are condemned, if we're lied about, slandered, whatever, may it be for that reason alone that nothing truly evil can be spoken of about us. I'm not preaching or teaching Christian perfectionism because there's indwelling sin in the life of believers. And in pretty much every book, the New Testament, there's a command to believers, which tell you believers sin, and so they're not perfect. It's a tough one for the Christian perfectionist crowd there can be a practical obedience that looks like Christ and if we don't hold to that, we're lawless and lawless isn't good. It's antinomianism and I would say that that plagues the church a lot these days. Just preach about obedience or teach about obedience. You'll be a legalist in two seconds. The only thing we need to get right on that though is the horse then the cart. Christ, thus obedience. Not obedience, thus Christ. Right? The second one, obedience, thus Christ, that is straight from hell. And that is false teaching. But Christ, therefore obedience and the power of Christ, is not false teaching. That is just, oh, read the Bible, teaching. Answer anyone. Wow. What would that be like? Satan is the accuser. So, It's not a matter of if a servant of God will be accused or slandered or persecuted, but when, how, and in what flavor. That's it. Three. Very much like two. The psalmist, a mark of his life, was speaking before kings. Speaking before kings. And earlier I mentioned perhaps this is not a one-to-one scenario. I don't know if you traveling to a foreign land or something um, to speak before a king, but the concept is absolutely true for us too. Um, Obedience will lead to the ability in either small doses or large to give a reason for the hope that we have. And perhaps it will actually be in those large measures. Right? There's that happened a lot, actually, in, in Scripture, um, where servants of God, the force of Satan, met the force of God, and they gave an answer. I had the opportunity, somehow. I have a pretty awesome CEO of our company, Whitewater Car Wash. Only on our third name. We're going to stick with it. Um, but our CEO is pretty great actually, because I speak to him on a regular basis and it's not just me. Like it's multiple, multiple managers, staff. Uh, he's kind of the blue collar CEO. I like that and I don't think it's fake. I think he does a good job at actually caring about his people. And So I had an opportunity a few weeks ago on a video call. Like, he asked pretty pointed questions, what motivates you? I was like, oh. That's, <laughs> there could not be a more God moment than that. And so, didn't get to share fully the gospel, but at the very least, you know, why do you care about your employees? Why do you care about guests? Image of God. Image of God. There's no choice. There's no choice but to give one every single second where you're on a job, whether it's car wash, whether it's whatever, because you are in the presence of image bearers. who, Those sinful are made in the image of God, and are worthy of dignity and respect because God says so. And what if we lived our life, by the way, by because God said so more often? Whew. Church would grow. That may be the highest level of status of person I get to talk to, whatever, but small example of, wow, like an opportunity was on a silver platter or like a red carpet or something. And prayerfully, prayerfully, I was faithful, right? And I say that just to to kind of flip it around. You guys, think about that. Think about the opportunities you have. And maybe just think about your own life. Not everyone's life is the same, but think about the opportunities you don't have, and perhaps ask why. Why don't I have them, and Lord, Maybe just help me recognize them. Right? Speak before Kings. Again, a great example to me is Daniel. And I'm going to turn there actually to Daniel 5, just a couple of verses. Daniel chapter 5. And these will be verses 16 and 17. This is King Belshazzar, rolls off the tongue, speaking to Daniel, needing some help on a dream. So he says, the king, to Daniel, but I have heard that you give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple, and have a chain of gold round your neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts before yourself, and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. So, Literally, Daniel speaking before a king. Maybe that is one reason why many commentators think that Daniel wrote Psalm 119, examples like this. But what I wanted you all to notice, what I wanted to key in on here, was the beauty that is happening in these two verses regarding serving God, regarding giving a sound life witness to the integrity of God and serving God. 16. Can you interpret my dream? If so, I will dangle worldliness straight in front of your face forever and ever into eternity, basically. In, in the form of a purple robe and a gold chain. Oh yeah, third in the kingdom. You know, I'd take third. Whatever. But Daniel respected the king as someone who was an authority over him. So check following God's law. Respected the king. Did not fall into worldliness by saying to me a great line, 17, let your gifts be for yourself and give your wards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to you. (laughs) I love that, man. I absolutely love that regarding Daniel in that, man, it would have been really easy to justify, man, I can kind of have my cake and eat it too. I give him the dream, I thank I thank him, right? Thanks for the help. And then I also am number three, and that's just now. I could be number two by next year. So Daniel doesn't fall into that, giving in some sense a living testimony before a king, yet keeping his integrity, which as I've spoken on, prayerfully it's come across, is everything um, in terms of the practical living out of a Christ-like life for God's people. Claiming to be Christ's and then living therefore in the power of the Spirit. Speak. Before kings. <clears throat> so we're walking in freedom as God's people, knowing He will come through in the trials of life. Prayerfully, upon walking in obedience, we can say that our life provides an answer to slander. Even if our words fail, perhaps our life could provide an answer to false accusations. Three, really the same concept in a different form. Speaking before kings, or perhaps for us, just speaking before those God sovereignly places in our lives. And number four, not be put to shame. Fourth mark of this psalm, writers, psalmist's life, is not being put to shame. And took these, these four realities, I think we could always say there's always more realities of what it would, what would classify a servant of God, but took these uh, in this psalm based on I shall or shall I statements given in Psalm 119, 41 through 48, 44, I will, 45, I will, 46, I will, end of 46, will not. 42, I can. I can answer. I will speak before kings. I will, I will, I will. These are what will classify my life based on the power of God and his work. Founded on his law, working itself out through his periodic salvation, it's showing itself in obedience Not being put to shame. What would being put to shame mean? If we were to try to define it, and I hope this is closely in line with Scripture, I think it is. put to shame here would, you could maybe say it this way, it's your left hanging by God. Being put to shame would be, wow, he didn't come through for me. Wow, the mockers, the scoffers, those who disobey, God, they, they were right. Like, I'm just, I'm hung out to dry here. Biblically, so actually, that is impossible because God is faithful. He does come through. And the only question is how he chooses. Not being put to shame. I'll reference Joseph again, who I think would be a great example that roller coaster Uh, but ultimately holding to the promises of God and we won't go into it but man his answers once he reconciles with to his brothers for why all this happened took a very high view of God and his plan which is a correct view of God and his plan but man could we say that So Joseph, multiple times in his life, I mean, really left more than just in the dust, left essentially for dead. Sold into slavery, accused of adultery, put in jail. In between those things, things seem to be looking up, only to be snatched. (laughs) from him, just when you think you figured out, oh, yeah, so God's deliverance, this is what it's like, oh, right? The reason I said earlier battle versus war is I think we can take from that reality and remember that about the Christian life and about how God chooses to work, right? Because we constantly focus on the here and now, and even if that here and now is like, A 40-year plan or something. In the grand scheme of things, that's still just a battle, though. And God really doesn't promise every last battle, every last circumstance, that is, to go in our favor. He does promise the war. That is, he promises what his ultimate plan is for his people and one way that that makes itself known is Romans 8:28. All things are working for the good of those who know Christ for our good. How does that good show itself? Could be like Joseph's life. Like I said, we don't define what is the deliverance God does. Right? It's war, not battles. It's long-term, not short-term. It's eternal, not temporal, if I pronounce that correctly. Not being put to shame. So no servant of God will ever be put to shame ultimately. But there is a reason for that. And that is because one took that humiliation and shame. Why could Daniel, why could Joseph, why could Moses, why could Noah, whoever, why could they trust in the promises of the Lord? Because God provided for them in Christ. The book of Hebrews says Christ despised the shame. Essentially, Christ knew the greater reward that was waiting for him upon his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, And one day, future glory with the people of God. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Christ endured shame that was undue to him for God's plan. Christ was mocked, though he deserved no mocking. Christ was counted a sinner, though. He was actually blameless, blameless, fully blameless in a way that we can't comprehend, Daniel couldn't have comprehended, Joseph couldn't have comprehended, and Joseph and Daniel are two of the great saints. But they weren't even in the same ballpark as Christ's blamelessness. We can't fathom that. We will not be put to shame, ultimately, We will not be left hanging by God if we're truly in Christ because Christ took that for us on the cross. These realities this morning about God's day in, day out rescue, I pray they do lead us to have growing lives marked by the psalmist's lifestyle obeying the law, walking in freedom, speaking before kings, not being put to shame, answering anyone. But I pray we do not miss the foundation of all this. Because what this sermon is not meant to be is roll up your sleeves, wait for your enemies to attack, and then take your Bible and swing at them, or something like that. It is meant... To point us to the one who took the scoffing, mocking, death, everything that we deserve. So that we can even be able to have a chance at living a life that looked somewhat like Paul's. At living a life that looked something like Daniel's. Something like Joseph's. Remember the one who took on that shame. Remember, based on that, and based on this psalm, and based on prayerfully what has been in line with God's word, what I've spoken on this morning, remember that we don't define what is deliverance and what is God's provision. Essentially, another way to say that, how God provides We do not define what a victory would be, ultimately. God defines all those things. Remember that God defines all those things. Remember that though you may lose battles, God's in charge of the war. Though you may lose battles, God's in charge of those things happening. Because they serve his greater purpose of winning the war that is bringing him glory. As OCL prayed earlier, Father, there are a number of things we do not understand about you. And 41, in its fullness, is one of those things. May your unfailing love come to me, Lord, your salvation according to your promise. I know this is true. I know you're going to come through. I know that you are faithful and you are just and you are good and you are loving, Lord. And I know that in of myself, I am not those things. And I know that though this thing may hurt, that thing may hurt, ultimately, you are the one moving history toward your purposes. I'll share one more thing, uh, maybe to put it into a bit of a practical scenario. Last couple months, for myself, some really stressful days, some great days in there, but some really stressful days. So, had a troubled employee, uh, an employee that simply was not going to work out. And we had to let her go. And it was a big scene. And upon that big scene, I was accused in multiple, multiple ways of saying it, impressive ways of saying it, of racism. Pangs hitting me. Accused of other things than that, too. Uh, All on a public message for the company to see. (sighs) Boy, I wish I had been in this part of the psalm (laughs) a little earlier. But I will say, God brings his word to mind for all of his servants. might be different portions of the word, depending on one's life, circumstance. But what he brought to mind, which is why I brought it to prayer meeting that week, was Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. That was all I could remember (laughs) upon trembling, to be honest. And I'm not saying this for some weird pity trip. Like, I just am trying to mention that this is real stuff that we go through. Psalm 91 was it for me. Shelter. If nothing else, God, you are shelter. (laughs) It doesn't seem that way today. But that's because I'm not seeing the full picture. As we sang this morning, based on Christ and what he took for us, trust and obey.